The following sermon was delivered during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is our guest preacher for today's service. Grace and peace to you all. As a pastors, Ramirez and, and Dunn can attest, there are so many times when we uh, start working on our sermons later than when we actually write the sermon title, and so you end up backing into a title. Well, I decided not to do that, so if anyone looked on the placard outside or on the website, you're not going to hear anything about how life can be hard and this can be easy, so just, just to let you know before we even begin. Got myself off that hook. Um, if, if you'll please pray with me. Lord, I pray that the words on my mouth and the meditation on all of our hearts is acceptable to you, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the letter to the Colossians, the second chapter beginning with the sixth verse. Hear now God's word for you. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food or drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. Dear hearts, this is the word of the Lord. Well, as many of you are aware, I'm the senior pastor of Jan Hus Presbyterian Church, where the Reverend Jordan Tarwater, who's minister of the Urban Outreach Center, also serves. Ours is a progressive outreach-oriented ministry on the Upper East Side. We're a congregation in transition, having sold our historic sanctuary to purchase a more suitable space on Fifth Avenue. Lots of things have to fall into place before we move in, including a complete renovation of the building and some repositioning for growth. 
Our mission is hospitality-based, and most of what we do involves food. Maybe that's why I like it so much. Likely, our future worship experiences will focus around the meal occasion as well. Recently, a friend passed along a book to me that your parish associate, Kelly Anderson Pacayo, passed along to him, Leaders Eat Last. It's a secular book by Simon Sinek that's deeply rooted in Christian ethics. Here's the punchline. In order for teams to succeed, leaders must put the needs of other people first, just like Jesus. Theoretically, when we begin to put the needs of others first, as Christ instructed, rooted and built up in him alone, who is the head and ruler and authority, one experience begets another until the world will become a better place for all. Here's how it plays out from the foreword of the book. When you are with Marines gathering to eat, you will notice that the most junior are served first and the most senior served last. When you witness this act, you will also note that no order is given. Marines just do it. At the heart of this very simple action is the Marine Corps' approach to leadership. Marine leaders are expected to eat last because the true price of leadership is the willingness to place the needs of others above your own. Great leaders truly care about those they are privileged to lead and understand that the true cost of the leadership privilege comes at the expense of self-interest. As I survey the landscape of our nation and our world, I'm not seeing much evidence of this pretty simple concept. Rather than being rooted in Christ, it seems more often the case that we've been taken captive through empty deceit and conceit by an inversion of priorities from the other to the self. My senses sent me on a scavenger hunt for all the ways that, uh, for finding this um, manifest in our society. The most frequent example I found is the inversion of the first and second person pronoun. Call me nerdy, or maybe a little old school, or maybe a little bit self-righteous, but when did we become a society that treats as a matter of course the ordering of the first person pronoun before a second person pronoun in a sentence? Me and my mom, me and Jason, me and her. I'm sure you get the idea. It's all over the morning shows, sitcom TV, and shout-outs by comedians, conversations on the sidewalk, book group banter, and even a Saturday NPR favorite, wait, wait, don't tell me. Am I making a mountain out of a molehill when I lament that me and my mom has become NPR acceptable? Do you sometimes find yourself bristling at the placement of pronouns too? Or hasn't it even crossed your mind? When I first recognized this trend, it was among a group of teenagers. I chalked it up to a frivolous educational environment and peer influences who were taunting their linguistically careful parents. But then I heard a news anchor say, me and her, in the middle of the Today Show. Then, an attorney who said, me and the judge, which led me to wonder if he really didn't know why he wasn't very successful at sidebar, placing his perspective above the bench. That's when I knew it wasn't just a grammatical aberration among teenagers and fancily employed 30-somethings. It was a manifestation of our culture that has come to prioritize the self over not only the placement, but the needs of others. 
David Brooks wrote an op-ed piece a while back on relational word studies that he performed on the Google database Ngram. In case you're not familiar, Ngram is a database of over 5 million books published, if you will, between 1500 and 2008. You can use it to search on specific words and find out how, how frequently they were used in different periods. For instance, I typed in fate between 1960 and 2008 to see what I would get. The number of books published between that 48-year period in which faith was included was a flat 7 one-thousandth of a percent, a commentary in itself. Then I changed the time period from 1600 to 2008, and as you would expect, simply from the kinds of books that were first written, Bibles, books of sermons, devotional prayer books, and the like, the frequency of the word faith was strongly skewed toward those earliest years. Anyway, the Brooks article referenced these three studies done on words found in books published from 1960 to 2008, the last 48 years. The first study he used found that individualistic words and phrases increasingly overshadowed communal words and phrases. Over the 48 years, words and phrases like personalized, self, stand out, unique, I come first, I can do it myself, were used more frequently. Words and phrases like community, collective, tribe, share, united, band together, and common good were used increasingly less often. Then Brooks considered another study that showed a decline in the general use of moral terms like virtue and decency and conscience. Words associated with moral excellence, words like honesty, patience, and compassion, all these were used less frequency, frequently. Interestingly, and with a nod to the first verse in today's scripture lesson, the use of words like thankfulness and appreciation dropped 49% during this 48-year period, and the use of compassion words like kindness and helpfulness dropped 56%. Meanwhile, the use of the words associated with the ability to deliver, like discipline and dependability, rose over those years, as did words associated with economic production and exchange. Now, the third study Brooks referenced was on the idea of demoralization. This study found a steady decline in the use of terms like faith and wisdom, ought, evil, and prudence, and a sharp rise in phrases like run the country, economic justice, nationalism, priorities, right wing, and left wing. The study suggests that over the last half century, society has become more individualistic, more politically minded, less compassionate and caring, less faith-centric, and less communally motivated. You don't even have to go as far as multivariate research from a popular search engine to know this to be true. There are simple examples like single-serve potato chip packages instead of the family-sized bags that you might be able to share with your family in the evening. Or how about placing your order online for Pizza Hut so that you can just, just jump right in and grab your box right off a shelf without having to talk with anyone. Or my personal favorite that I witnessed this morning, 
single drivers in HOV lanes. Never, ever. But then there are these larger ideas, like the popularly reported fact that just seven Americans, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Michael Bloomberg, own as much of the world's wealth as the poorest half of humanity. In more tangible terms, seven men have as much as 3.8, 3.6 billion of the poorest men, women, and starving children in the world. This perverse concentration of wealth is so frequently mentioned that it's become to sound like America's mantra for the dream come true, rather than a rallying cry to support the world's most desperately poor. We act as if we're immune to its effects. We only need to consider our reaction to the recent tax proposals coming out of Washington to know that this is true. Our disorder in pronoun choices, transaction-like interactions, and our prioritization of the individualistic needs over the communal ones illustrate our society's increasing self-centeredness and the pervasive sense of privilege for me over anyone else. Dare I say, God. Now I'm going to push us just a little bit this morning to consider how these individualistic attitudes uprooted from Christ, a world living according to human tradition, deprioritizing the needs of others, also speaks to our personal neglect of the ones who need us most, making you and I complicit in what we have allowed to be done and left undone to improve the state of the world today. You see, the treatment of the most marginalized or worse off in society is a sort of thermometer that measures the spiritual health of the rest. When the treatment of the local least sinks low, we recognize that the spiritual health of the whole community is low. Extrapolating this idea to our individual and collective work in the world, when we notice that our kids' art and library programs are being cut from their schools, or when we see an increased number of homelessness on our streets, or when we see an increase of mental health meltdowns just outside of our sanctuary gates, or when we hear an increase about an increase of malnourishment or disease and sadness on either side of our southern border, we need to reclaim the biblical truth that our priorities are laying low. Our priorities are out of order. They are not rooted in the ways of Jesus. That there are oppressed or destitute people in this world is scandalous enough. But to have circumstances of oppression right outside of our own doors while we sit comfortably inside should be far more difficult to accept. The conversation is not whether to protest another sky rise, a sky, another high rise about to interrupt our cityscape. The conversation should be how can we create systems of justice and programs of action for affordable housing, particularly from our churches, so the housing insecure and homeless don't need to carry their closets on their backs in the first place. 
the pervasive disordering in our cultures today, this damaging lack of rootedness in Christ, right down to the placement of first-person pronouns before the second, is one of the concerns that the writer of the letter to the Colossians was addressing in the culture of his day when people were being tempted away from the roots of Christ toward those matters of self-importance in society that lured children into their homes to work as slaves and cast out the city's poor beyond the gates of the city to rot in segregated communities and treated young women as chattel in upper-ended dwellings. In other words, the letter to the Colossians is, in fact, for any of us today who are essentially, by what we have done and what we have left undone, further subordinating those who are in positions of vulnerability and dependency, leaving them to sleep in crowded shelters in New York, settlements, camps across the globe, rusted tin lean-tos on ravaged island commonwealth communities, and shabbily constructed shacks in deserts and riverbeds at the border of the United States of America. Yes, the structure of our sentences is not all that is out of order. We have allowed ourselves to be structurally out of order in our communities, our nation, and our world, leaving the churches, that's you and me, with a great deal to be done. Because somewhere in the space between the intraday news briefings, the op-ed section, and our Sunday morning worship, We need to remember that while immigration reform might be a political concern, it is more foundationally a religious concern, just like homelessness and hunger and health care. And while education might, too, be a political concern, it is more importantly a religious concern, just like the environment and employment. And while terrorism is indeed a political concern, it is more importantly a religious concern, just like gangs and gun violence of the sort that left at least one dead and many, many more injured during a picnic yesterday afternoon in Brooklyn. And since Jesus orders that these matters pertaining to the most vulnerable are within our responsibility as communities of faith, as well as the political communities of New York City and Washington, D.C., you and I need to attend to them, not only as the collective responsibility of Auburn Seminary, some random church, or maybe the people's I'm going to talk about that, the uh, poverty campaign, the something of the poor. Help me. The poor people's campaign, the word slipped out of my mind. They are the responsibility of each one of us here, not believing for a minute that our work is ever done. You see, I'm deeply concerned that our disordered culture today hears a reading of sacred scripture and considers it yesterday's news. We read the text from the Roots of Faith traditions and feel like we've done our job by going past the verse of the day. We've allowed our relationship with Jesus to become more of a far-out limb than the lead root that stabilizes us and nourishes us, feeding us in what is right and wrong, just and unjust. As a result, we become immune to the atrocities of the world and content to lament rather than act. This 
lowering of the baseline of what's acceptable toward our neighbors is tantamount to lowering the baseline of what is acceptable to God. Christians, take heart. When we make choices in our lives to deprioritize another person, we are making the choice to deprioritize Christ. When we make the choice to deprioritize another person, we make the choice to sever the root that holds us upright and makes our communities strong. And when we make the choice to lift up some of the world's elected officials who are ordering the most vulnerable around with hyperbolic lunacy, let us remember that we serve a sovereign God who orders the world with justice. As a sovereign ruler, Christ calls us to an order that transcends every earthly claim on the human heart. Christ calls us to an order where those who have the most vulnerable are prioritized over those who have the most, remembering that whatever we do for the least of these, we are doing unto God, because we will never have order in this world unless we reorder our hearts and our minds around the one who leads us into eternal life. May we reflect upon our daily choices and the ordering of our work relationships, and ways of being, to consider all those ways that we have separated ourselves from the root of Christ and live according to a human tradition rather than the ways of our Lord. May Christ alone embolden us to strive for a world where everyone is welcome and well-tended and free. And may we find ways to help root even our little corners of the communities within the truth of Christ for a wider world that so needs justice and mercy and compassion and love today. Thanks be to God. Amen. So about a week ago, I heard this story that I, you know, thought was true, I probably should admit that, because when I shared it with another friend, he said, don't ever tell someone you just learned about this story, because apparently it's lots and lots of years old. It's this myth of the frog in the boiling water. Do you all know that one? Okay, so I really was the only one who didn't know, but for the two or three of you out there who have not heard this story, it's really great. If a toad is put into boiling water, and I did not test this, apparently it jumps right out, according to the myth. And if a toad is put into cold water and the, war, and the water is left to get warmer and come to the point of boiling, the toad will have become so acclimated to the temperature as it rises that it will stay in that vat of water and die. And of course, the moral of the story is don't allow yourself to become so acclimated to situations as, it, as they become worse and worse that you and by extension, the society dies. I kind of like the moral of the story, even though the whole thing is based on a myth. So I'll simply charge that we go out into this world in peace.
that we return no one evil for evil but do good, that we strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, and help the suffering, that we honor all people. Let us love and serve the Lord our God, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forever. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.